Nader Haram. Hello. Welcome to the podcast. I'm back, baby. We're back. Protest and survive. 2020. 2020. This is my year. This is our year. Well, we may have recorded this interview in mid-February, way before coronavirus engulfed the United States and Bernie dropped out. But I don't care. 2020 is still our year. Welcome to Protest and Survive. I'm your host, Reed Dunley. This episode, we've got Nader Haram, vocalist of Arabic language New York punk band Haram. What punk means to me is what I've lacked my whole life, which is just freedom. Like freedom from just being like, held down because of cultural like limitations, societal limitations, just just breaking free from from things like that and and just doing anything that you feel is right for yourself and for the people around you. That's really the way I define it. I first got to know Nader in 2017. Uh, we had been seeing each other around at punk shows around New York City for a couple of years. Uh, had spoken a handful of times. And around that time, because a lot of our mutual friends knew that I was a video journalist for this website called Circa, people kept on contacting me, mentioning to me, coming up to me, and letting me know that law enforcement had been in touch with Nader about his random New York City punk band called Haram. Obviously, that sort of caught my attention, and I reached out to Nader, and we started talking about it. And we ended up making this short mini-documentary for the website that I was working at about Nader's experience being approached and questioned by the NYPD-FBI Joint Terrorism Task Force, which is basically this like joint agency between the police in New York City and the FBI that would do, you know, quote unquote, anti-terrorism investigations around the New York area. NYPD had done all this shady stuff that they had gotten in trouble for after 9-11 for basically spying on Muslim communities. So there was this history already of New York law enforcement not respecting the civil rights of Muslim identifying people. So yeah, I ended up putting out this video um, through my work. I was really you know, proud and grateful to be able to try to retell the story of what was going on with Nader and his band Haram. I'll always remember that first day that I went up to the house that Nader was living at with some other punk kids in Yonkers, and we did the kind of master interview that we made this piece out of where Nader just told me the story of you know, his childhood, of growing up in New York City after September 11th with two parents who were Lebanese refugees. He told me about, you know, playing in this punk band and how being able to actually sing in his native language of Arabic uh, and sing it loudly and angrily to a bunch of people who were down to listen and mosh and go off when he would play was just this big moment of actually being able to own his identity. And you know, the thing about doing that interview and sort of every subsequent conversation, um, whether it was about a project or just, you know, as friends since then, was he's an extremely eloquent person. He's an extremely thoughtful person. And I feel like I've just learned so much by talking to him. So I was pretty stoked a few years later to be able to sit down again and talk about what he was working on now. And this past summer, in July of 2019, his band Haram went on a tour to Southeast Asia and Japan. They played nine shows in Singapore, Malaysia, Indonesia, and Japan. And why I think this was a you know particularly significant tour for Nader was for the first time he was gonna go to Muslim majority countries 
and play shows. When he's in the United States, I think that there's a handful of times when people who grew up Muslim or are still practicing Muslims have been able to see him play and they've been able to share those experiences. You know, to be able to get up and play in front of other punks who are actually raised Muslim and a lot of them still are Muslim is going to be a, a different cultural experience than getting up and playing to a bunch of kids who don't know much about that culture in the United States. To kind of tee it up and back it up a tiny bit, you know, we had a conversation at this point. This was over the summer. It was hot. That's all I remember. Um, and this was a July. And I believe it was a tour kickoff show for like the, your Southeast Asia tour. The day before we flew out. It was right before we, we played, I think. I remember you grabbed me like, oh, like let's take a fucking walk right now. And I was like, all right, let's go. And I sat in a puddle of piss. That's yeah, it smelled like piss. <laughs> or something. Yeah, it smelled like piss. And then like we talked. And I felt really scared talking to you. Not that I'm like not extremely comfortable talking to you. It's just like, it just all hit me in that moment. Like, I was just like, oh fuck, we're gonna do this tomorrow. So in terms of like the weight of leaving, the burden of like, yeah, of all the thoughts of like, that I was having anxiety about, you know? Cause like, this is the first time we were going to like Muslim majority countries. And I'm pretty sure I talked about that with you. You did. Um, like just the anxiety of like, how are they gonna, gonna see me or are these people gonna be fans are they gonna be people that hear about the band and just come to see what it's about and then hate it and react to that you know i was just ready for any scenario and i always am you know and that's something that i struggle to talk about with some people in a serious way you know like the threat of maybe violence at a show you know targeted towards me or my bandmates um and you know not to say that I was more or less worried going on this tour, but just the fact like that we were playing in some uh, Muslim majority countries worried me a little bit because I know how that works, you know, like um, Lebanon, where my family is from, isn't Muslim majority. But even if you're not practicing Muslim, like it's important to you, you know what I mean? Like culturally. So like that's why I was a little bit worried about playing a show in places like Jakarta or like Kuala Lumpur, you know, where Islam is like really just like interweaved into the the culture there. Um, but nothing bad really happened. Um, we can get into that later. So let's take a listen to a segment of the conversation that Nader and I had the night before he was leaving on this tour. What's your name? Nader Haram. And uh, what do you do? I sing in a band called Haram. I live in New York City. Brooklyn, to be specific. Where are you from? I'm from New York, originally Yonkers, New York. Uh, my parents are Lebanese immigrants, uh, my direct parents. So I was born here as a first generation American. Uh, when I was born here, I spent five years, the first five years of my life in Lebanon. And then I came back here for school. I went to school not knowing how to speak English. I was just speaking about this to a friend of mine. Uh, and that was the beginning of my life. And the story of how I got to this spot is very peculiar and has its ups and downs. But I'm glad to be here. Yeah, and maybe that we're going to do a, maybe like a two-part interview. So maybe we'll hear that full story when we have all the time in the world. Yeah, it's a lot to talk, it's a lot to talk about. A lot of events had 
uh, shaped who I am today. So there is a lot to explain and talk about. Where are we right now? Uh, we are in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn, New York. We are about to play a kickoff show that's happening uh, a block away from us right now. And uh, we are leaving on a Southeast Asia slash Japan tour on Sunday morning. And uh, we are two days out from that currently. How do you feel about that? Oh boy. There's a lot of feelings going through me right now. Uh, I'm humbly excited. It's such a privilege to be able to, to go out as a band from New York, a small band from New York. Uh, we've been playing for about four years and to be at this point where we could travel at this extent is really just humbling. Um, it's the first tour where I, where I feel a little bit worried. I'm usually like very uh, courageous and strong to like go out and, and represent my band and the message that we have. Um, and my bandmates are, are like family to me. I think I could say that we all feel the same way. Um, not many bands have come here from there. A few have recently, and they're very nice and amazing people. And we've got to talk to them a little bit about how it is there. Um, but just in general, like, a, you know, I grew up Muslim uh, for 17 years of my life. I was Muslim. Um, and uh, we are playing some Muslim majority countries where I expect some even like the show attendees will be practicing Muslims. I've been told that even like fully decked out punks, studs in all leather, uh, will take it all off and, you know, still pray five times a day and still fast during Ramadan. So that's a whole new lifestyle that I'm very curious about. And for me, I fight for progressiveness in Islam. And I'm curious to how they'll take my perspective of growing up Muslim or being ex-Muslim and still talking about it and fighting for that. Um, but there is also the chance of someone feeling disrespected but what I'm doing and not uh, asking me what I'm about and just kind of going for the, the judgment, you know? Um, and I, I wonder what the challenge, if a challenge is gonna approach me in person, you know, after the shows or before we even get there. Um, there's also the case of flying into the airports there recently in, um, in Singapore, I believe, or it might have been Indonesia, uh, a band got turned away for singing about, uh, they had anti-religious themes. It was like a metal band. And they got turned away at the border. They were, their whole tour got canceled. So we're, we're gonna have to be a little bit more low key, you know, than um, our previous travels. Uh, How will you do that? Honestly, just not looking like what I look like right now. <laughs> just like probably wearing like, normal clothes and just looking like a tourist as much as possible, you know, um, and like, just like, yeah. And that have your bandmates ever seen you wearing normal clothes? Yeah. And that's like a funny thing because like a lot of people see me at work and I, you know, I still have my shit on or whatever. And like a lot of people see me, like I dress like this every day, anytime I can, that I'm not like, you know, it, it makes me happy personally. And it's like something that I was restricted from doing most of my life, like expressing myself as a person stylistically was never a thing I was really allowed to do. Um, so there's been a huge like explosion of that in my life recently. And I, I really don't care what anyone thinks about the way I look. I just like take pride in um, my own fashion, my own style. 
Can, sorry to interrupt, but can you describe to me what your look is or maybe like what you're wearing right now? It's ever changing, but I don't like to wear clothes. I find it to be restrictive, but also there's a huge point in that. Um, I like to seem as threatening as possible to normal people. I don't really know how to explain that, but people even like in our community will still look at me and be like, wow, like you're really like, courageous, like for looking that way. Even tonight, like a few people have said that, you know, like what a step, what a look, you know, like, and it's like, ah, like, I don't know. Like for me, a lot of like cis males will come up to me and be like, what's up with you? You know, it's like a, immediately a challenge. And I like that. I just like to be challenging in every aspect of what I do. And for me, my fashion, my style makes me happy. Um, and that's the most important thing. And I'm very into fashion and I, I love um, looking at other people's and encouraging them to express themselves as they will. Um, but also like there is a lot that I think punk has lost. And this is like the main point, I think, in, in what I think, uh, the reason I think I dress this way. Like I think a lot of like the punk aesthetic in terms of fashion has been like normalized now. It's commercialized, you know, like uh, wearing a leather jacket with studs is mainstream. Uh, having earrings as a male even is very mainstream, dangly earrings. You see it in, in rap and trap culture and, and pop music, you know. Uh, punk as a, as a aesthetic is not challenging. It's not scary. It doesn't threaten anybody. And I feel like that used to be a huge thing. That used to be a huge point, you know what I mean? Um, I think that has been lost. So any way I could really bring that back, uh, is something I strive for. And I think I found to do that in my own way. So what are the articles of clothing or lack thereof that you're wearing at this very moment? I like wearing fishnets because I think they're sexy. Uh, they make me feel cool uh, and comfortable. I'm wearing underwear, sparkly red underwear that I've only worn under my clothes. So I'm happy that I'm wearing them above my clothes and out in the open. Um, I have a pair of combat cowboy boots on which i'm very proud of it's kind a, of a crossover it took me so long to find these and i when i finally did i was very happy because usually boots like these have like a smooth uh bottom and it's very prone to slipping so i was really happy when i found these and fishnet uh what do you call these i guess arm things uh <laughs> and some leather here and there some studs here and there some pins leather vest you know i'm doing my thing that's all. You got the signature headband, of course. I got my headband, and that's really like... You sleep with it? <laughs> sometimes. Uh, when it's really bright? <laughs> it helps with that, for sure. I don't know. My headband, I'm extremely attached to. It is something that I think... You know, it's funny, actually. I'll, I'll say this. Like, There's been times I've gone to shows and not worn my headband, and people don't even know who I am. So you started talking about this, and we got a little sidetracked. Um, but... Tell me about experiences that you've had flying with Haram and what about those make you nervous about this trip? Almost every single flight that I've taken with Haram, I am the last one to go through the gate. And this is something you can confirm with my bandmates. It's almost gotten to like an absurd level to where there is absolutely no reason to pull me off the line, but I am pulled off. And I'm not saying this in a corny way like, I know some people really like to, like, drive that home and be like, no, like, 
I'm, you know, either like a first generation or an, an immigrant and I get pulled over and like, it's, it's, it's a reality. And for me to talk about it, it, it is a, an uncomfort, uncomforting thing. When I think about going to the airport, I feel uncomfortable and that shouldn't be a feeling that anyone has. Um, almost anytime we fly, it's a problem. Uh, it's, it's never gotten to the point where I'm not allowed to board, but it has backed up uh, our boarding before. Uh, I've never missed a flight because of it, thankfully, thus far. What does that make you think about what's going to be coming up on this tour? Uh, I just, you know, I, I don't, I never go not expecting these things. I try to be as ready as possible for any sort of detention, any sort of investigation, any sort of breakdown. I try to be as educated as possible in terms of foreign policy and, and the way different countries operate in terms of tourists and people crossing in. The reason I'm worried is because I'm not too educated on the countries that we're going to. I'm not too familiar with their policies. Um, and what I've heard has been bad for some, especially bands and, and musicians and performers and artists. Um, I think we'll be okay. Uh, our drummer has been to these countries and has lived in one of these countries for many years. Um, and we have- and, and what are these countries? Singapore, Malaysia, Indonesia, and Japan. We finish off in Japan. Um, our first flight is to Tokyo. We have a layover and then we fly to Singapore and that's our first show. We have two shows there. And most of the tour will be in Indonesia and Malaysia, a total of six shows. And then we finish off in Japan for the last three. So a pretty, you know, a, a decent tour. It's gonna be about three weeks of traveling and playing so it doesn't seem like a lot but it's gonna be a lot what's the goal for you for this tour do you have one usually my goal going on tour anywhere we play even every show in new york that we have local shows is to be present as possible is to have as many conversations like as i can with people be present for questions um talk to people meet new people be welcoming this is the first tour i could say hundred percent where I'm going there to learn. I'm in this case, the student, I'm also going, I'm sure going to be explaining a lot of the reasons we're a band and why we're interested in playing at these, in these places. Um, but I have a lot to learn. I, I personally have like so many questions to ask, um, the people we're staying with, people we're playing with the people that will come to our shows. And, um, I know that I'll have the opportunity to do that. And I'm going to focus mostly on that and eating the food. There's a lot of good food out there. I've heard. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm pretty jealous of that part. What are the questions that you're planning on asking on this tour in Asia? Specifically, I know I will meet a lot of practicing Muslims and or ex-Muslims. And I always speak from my perspective as a first generation Arab American growing up in New York. Okay. I have a lot of questions for people of my same background that grew up in different states. Like, I think that perspective is already completely different, you know, um, let alone a foreign country. So I will mostly have questions about perspective and how people are treated. And, and if, if, you know, what, what is bigotry over there? What is mistreatment? You know, it must be different. It must be a different perspective, you know? So things like that, you know, like things like, w w what does it mean 
to have even just our lifestyle out there? What does it mean to be punk over there? What does it mean to have alternative lifestyle? What does it mean? What is what? How do you dress? What do you do? You know what I mean? There's so many. I could, I could go on forever. You know, it's like it's a non-ending list, and I can't wait to just get out there and, and get to talking to people and starting conversations with people. I really can't wait for that. And the next morning, Nader left on tour. Straight up, it took us over half of a year to get back together, but we sat down at my kitchen table in Brooklyn and talked about what it was like for him to go all the way to the other side of the world uh, to play shows for a very different audience than what he was used to and sort of what those experiences like. We kind of really get in the detail of country to country to show to show um, how those you know scenes reacted to seeing Nader and his band Haram. I don't really think I've heard of too many people having exactly this type of experience of going so far away, but identifying with people in a way that you're not necessarily able to identify with at home. I'll talk a little bit about your band, Haram punk band at this point if you've been listening i've probably played a little bit of your music at some point so if you haven't heard the band already it's a hardcore punk band it's pretty raw it's got uh not typical drum beats people describe the guitars as uh snake-like snaky slimy slimy and you know you guys have been gigging around new york for five years almost five years now yeah uh toured multiple times around the united states what was it you ever do west coast or anything uh we did like a brief like pacific northwest we haven't done like a full west coast tour i don't think i really think it makes sense to you know like it's just like everything's really spread out major cities but we've we've been everywhere in the u.s there's not one place except for new orleans i think that i really want to play but you guys have sort of you know established yourself as a as a serious new york punk band records on toxic state which is the what go to this is a go-to for nyc punk shit in the modern era um but you went all the way to the other side of the world this summer to play some shows yeah can you tell me about that so we went on a southeast asia tour that's what we were calling it even though we were going to japan as well and it's funny a lot of people when we came back we're like oh how was japan like you were in tour in japan right and i was like that was like the ass end of the tour that was like the last few days you know like no the majority of it was in spread out between singapore indonesia and malaysia um i mean japan was great i like it shout out to all the japanese punks that came out to support us and shogo-san but yeah but for it it's like kind of had like a weird it left a weird feeling for me because it's just like ah like i feel like japan specifically to new yorkers is like this like this like punk like fucking six flags you know what i mean like you go there and like oh like that's where gauze played or what you know what i mean it's like whatever you know like it's just like it's just a place with people doing well then when shit. you and then when you go to japan and you go to shows in japan and see punks and stuff you're like oh yeah like yeah f- frampton is our local band it's yeah. not in the same way that in new york people are like oh my god crazy spirit it's not or something it's like it's just, it it's just a fucking band and they maybe look at some bands from here in the same way you know what i mean but yeah um you know there are legendary bands and that's that's cool but like they're people you know what i mean i'm like 
I've, that that boundary for me was broken a while ago. You know, like I used to be like see people play and be like, oh my god, like I wonder what their life is like and shit. And it's like now I know what their lives are like, and it's just some normal shit sometimes. You know, um, <laughs> they eat and uh, shit and piss and they eat and shit and piss and they maybe. live and they gotta pay bills and they gotta fucking walk their dog. You know, <laughs> um, but I will tell you about the tour. Um, so before we left, I talked to you. And I remember, I don't remember much, but I remember expressing like some anxiety about going and playing in these places, being that some of them were like Muslim majority countries. And I speak about Islam a lot, uh, not always in a positive light. You know, I do have a lot of criticisms of it. And the band's name, Haram in itself, is kind of just like a criticism of like the Muslim lifestyle and the limitations it brings on like a life uh in western society at least but anyway like uh our first stop was singapore we got there we flew separately it was me and james and then mike and martin james plays bass mike plays guitar martin plays james plays drums james plays drums mike plays guitar martin plays bass there you go nice reads our friend (laughs) uh so yeah we fucking we landed in singapore separately like hours apart and luckily james's sister lives in Singapore. Um, so we, we got to stay with her and she's wonderful and, and took care of us while we were there. Do they look and act similar? Oh my God. James and his sister? Oh my fucking God. They are <laughs> two peas in a pod. Very similar. <laughs> they look similar. They argue in the same way. It's great. They're great. Uh, James's family is amazing. Yeah, so we got to stay in Singapore. We had a day off when, when we... Well, we landed at night. It was like... No, it was late. It was like midnight or something. Landed already. Like I remember the one of the first things I remember is me and James are in a, a car from the airport to Alex's house, his sister, and we get into a conversation with the cab driver and like we tell him what we're doing here because he sees like the gear and he's like, "You guys are like a rock band or something, or whatever." And we start talking and we talk like i tell him a little bit about what the band's about and he starts playing like arabic music on the radio i have a video of it it's like really funny and like the first experience like we're like dancing in front of his cab you know bars and that kind of like put me on the right foot i was like fucked up and like they don't know what day or time it was but like it was a good introduction it kind of just gave me this like comfort off the bat like okay like this isn't maybe as bad as my anxiety was telling me it was going to be, you know? Um, so we got there, we spent the night next day. We went to this market. They have these things called like hawker markets, which is just like, like a hundred stalls. It's kind of like, like fucking like flushing mall. You know what I mean? It's like kind of like that style. Um, it was amazing. Like some of the best, like smoothies and food I've ever had ever. And like, just like outside, it was like beautiful, like weather and shit. It got really hot during the day, and James made us hike like a mile the first or whenever it was like some like really long ass like adventure. I love it, but I remember Mike was like dying that day and like was complaining about some shit, his pants or something. Uh, we met up with Hafiz from Seattle, um, local to Singapore. Seattle is a great fucking band. I was really excited to see them and meet them. Actually, I'd never met them, played with them. And we 
just like kind of fucked around. We went like downtown. Went to like the Chinatown of Singapore. Um, and that was a day off. Yeah, that was a day off. And then the next day we fucked around and then we played the show at night. And the Singapore show was fucking wild. It was in Seattle's practice space, which fit like, dude, like it was like 25 fucking people. Like it was so small, like not bigger than this, like super small and the hottest show I've ever played. I love the heat. When I start sweating, I start going fucking wild. It's that kind of drives me. But this one, I was just like afraid of passing out. Like there was a few moments during the set where I was like, shit, I got to like take a step back for a second because I feel woozy. I have a thing where I don't drink water while we play. It's not like a, you know, a, a, a dig on anyone that does. I just like, it's like kind of like a challenge, you know, like I want to get through it and like push my body to its limits. I want it to be a workout to the very end. And then I die afterwards, you know, for a little bit and then I come back out. You know, I was watching the Taylor Swift documentary the other night and she was talking about in her like kind of getting really big in a pop as a pop star days, she was not really eating a lot. And when she would perform, she would said that she would be kind of like getting a headache and kind of getting woozy and kind of like felt like she was like going to kind of lose it. And she was like, oh, this is what like playing a show feels like. But then she started like eating more and stuff. And she was like, oh, I can actually feel like I could accomplish this. So I I kind of see a, um, a commonality there between her and your approach to playing live. Yeah. Uh, you know, I don't know what the fuck Taylor knows about me, but, uh, I know nothing about her and that's, that's kind of cool to know, but, um, yeah, that's something that I have a hard time eating like big meals before we play. Cause I like to dance, like move around. I don't get like how people could do that. You know, for me, like if I eat a big meal, like I'm done, like I'm sitting down and go chill and smoke a bunch of cigarettes and just chill out. Um, well, you're a skinny guy too. I'm a skinny person. Maybe that's why. I don't know. I don't know what, but for me, I usually like fast. Like I have this whole like the harami ritual, I call it, you know, like I don't eat for like four or five hours out of the show. Um, I just drink water. I get in the fucking zone. It's something that, that I really have to be in a certain mind state to do, you know? Um, and it got me this time, like at the Singapore show, like I was like, I should have eaten and I should have drank a lot of water, but it was a great fucking show, dude. It was, it was in a mall. Let me just tell you real quick. Yeah. It was inside of a fucking shopping mall. The, the the Singapore punks had somehow gotten, well, it was, uh, yeah, I guess it was just a practice space next to this record shop, Surface Noise, that's over there. And it was so crazy. Like, you go up the escalator, like literally a fucking mini mall. You go up the two escalators and you go up the hall and make a left. And then all of a sudden, there's a fucking the hallway with punks in it and fucking people from all over the world chilling there. I miss people from here, like people like just live in Singapore. Um, and everyone was packed into that fucking room. No one could fucking move. I had to like fucking like run out and I just like laid down on the tile right outside the room. Like I was done, but it was a great way to start the tour. It was like the perfect, like small, like intimate setting that I wanted for our shows anywhere. Um, but to start the tour off that way was great. Um, then after that. And typically when I've seen you play and we've talked about this after you play a show, you kind of spend a bit of time having conversations with people who saw you play. Oh yeah. Um, for people coming from 
various backgrounds and having various questions or comments or whatever. And we actually talked about this a little bit before you went on this tour too, that you were really looking forward to the types of conversations you were going to be having. Um, specifically one thing that, you know, you had mentioned was, uh, you were interested in kind of exploring your ex Muslim perspective and their current Muslim identities. Mm. Um, I definitely got to explore that. You also <laughs> said when we talked before we before you went on this tour, I like to challenge. I like to be challenging in every aspect of what I do, mm. um, and that's not necessarily relating just to this. But did those conversations start night one while you're laying down on that tile floor after the show? Oh yeah! As soon as I got up from the tile, like after the show, I went to the parking garage that was adjacent to the mall with one person who i think was born in england like their english was like perfect um and about like four or five other kids from the show and there is a recording of this ah, fuck i should find it for you there's a recording of he like interviewed me on the spot and with these kids there and like i interviewed them and like it was so cool fuck i forgot about this um i'll see if i could find it but it was uh so important to just like learn a little bit about punks in singapore specifically because my first impression of singapore was that it looked like there was like just a huge divide in uh class you know what i mean like you go to like the financial district of the city and it's like beautiful and whatever and like everything is just put like all like poverty and shit is it's not interwoven into any of that like you don't see like in new york like you'll go to like 42nd street like you'll see like the bankers and all the fucking bullshit people but you also see homeless people you know it's like they're living like, adjacent to each other like in singapore it was like no like the, i think the city made like a big point of like putting those people on a different side of town um so it was like really like interesting to see like and i think the mall was like in the muslim neighborhood like it was on the street i don't know what the fuck they call it called it but it was like little arabia like there was like all like all of a sudden like there was like falafel shops everywhere and like fucking like uh, mosques everywhere and like i think um that was like the start of like the the poverty line um in terms of the way like the city is structured so a lot of those kids like just put me on to like what it's like to to live within that divide um i don't remember talking too much about muslim identity in singapore i focused more on that in indonesia and malaysia so we'll get to that we'll get to that but in, in singapore yeah uh we went, we played a show, and then we came back later on in the tour. And I saw a lot of the same kids again. Um, so it was interesting to come back and talk to some of those kids uh, after coming back from... It was like basically our our layover between Indonesia and Japan. So we left Indonesia, flew back to Singapore, had a day off, and then flew to Japan. So we got to hang out with Seattle and all those kids again. Um, yeah, so it was definitely a, a really meaningful show. I... I I have very fond memories of that show. Um, and the next day we went to Malaysia, to Penang. Um, plane? Plane, yeah. Uh, we flew a lot on this tour. Uh, went to Penang. You also did mention that you were a little anxious about the amount of flying that was going to happen and your specific experiences. Do you feel like getting into that conversation at all? Sure. Like, I'll say one thing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Everything like security wise was okay. I think once or no, actually there was like 
a couple of times they give us a lot of shit about our gear um because we can't travel saying that we're a band we don't have the proper documentation for that and you need to apply for a separate visa for that so we're like tourists with instruments you know what i mean which is a really sketchy type of vibe to a lot of these like security officers airport police so um there's a few times where we had to talk our way out of it you know um but specifically i remember in the flights uh in malaysia to malaysia and to like in between cities in indonesia whenever you're landing or taking off there is always a part of like you know like there's like the automated airport or plane voice that comes on it's like welcome to like blah 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 airlines and like whatever like thank you for flying with us and whatever but the very last line was always like like as a reminder like drugs are punishable by death thank you and like like that was just hammered in that was everywhere like drugs are if you are traveling into our country looking to buy sell or trade drugs you will die like it was like literally like on the plane you're like uh, stretching out like oh okay finally fucking made it gotta fly to this place you're gonna die and you're like what the fuck like that's crazy so i tried to make it a point of like look we're not even like really a big drug band i don't do anything but some of us do really try to make it a big point to say like look we're not doing anything here because god forbid we get fucking stuck out here who who's gonna fucking help us trumpy boy he's not gonna get us out of fucking indonesia you know what i mean so he's not gonna asap rocky he's not gonna asap rocky me fuck asap rocky i can't believe you uh (laughs) but yeah uh no he wouldn't do that so i i tried to make it a point of that that's one thing i uh, that's like one of the only things that i think i was like holy shit that's like fucking something different you know um because, like, you know, there could just be a law that's, that you know, and so maybe it's on, like, the back of the immigration card or something, you know. But no, it's, like, on the fucking plane speaker, you know, like, introducing you to your flight, which is, like, jarring and crazy. Um, but, yeah, so we went to Malaysia. Uh, I remember when we first landed in Malaysia, we got picked up. We were driving to the city. I was in a car alone um, with one person that was just driving and i knew that we were in some different like this was gonna be different now like i thought maybe like singapore i got a little bit of a taste of southeast asia i was really wrong like i knew that i was in this is going to be a place with a different set of values a different culture and different types of people immediately and singapore the official language is english it's english so So. i found out later in the tour from talking to people in indonesia and malaysia people in singapore don't talk about themselves like this but like there is this stigma about singaporeans that they're kind of like this upscale like american ally like kind of like you know high class finance shit of course there's so much money that goes through that country they're a huge trading a hub you know and like uh again their american allies and their militaries juice the fuck up you know um but yeah there is like a stigma amongst people like just looking at singaporeans um but anyway so we land in malaysia immediately felt you know like i was in a different place but excited you know i was like holy shit penang malaysia we got some really good indian food when we landed, there's some like weird drunk British tourists that wouldn't leave us alone. I remember that. He's like, Oh, you're gonna love this place, mate. It's gonna be fucking crap. I was like, Oh, God, I can't like escape like white people <laughs> sometimes. I don't wanna say that, but like sometimes it's just like 
fuck let me like have my own like vision here you know uh that food was really good. well amazing. especially when your band is full of them i know right so look so i i can't talk too much shit but um <laughs> It was annoying. It was just like fucking, it had nothing to do with his color. It was just like, he was just drunk and fucking foreign. Well, it sucks when you go somewhere really far away and all of a sudden you have someone speaking to you in English who's not from there either and, and trying fucking to fucking pissing you off. What like, bothered me was that he was trying to explain it to me. Like, oh, you're going to love this place. And like, he was there like backpacking or some shit. All I remember is that we all definitely remember that dude. Like, if you talk to anyone else in the band, they're going to be like, oh yeah, fuck that dude. You know, like we all equally hated him. Well, I hate, I hate traveling. Like I, I hate being in public and listening to other people's conversations. Like on the train, when I hear people talk about stupid shit, or I'm in a restaurant and hear people talk about stupid shit. And I love going places where I don't speak the language because everyone can talk as much as they fucking want. I'm like I don't know what the fuck they're talking about. They're talking shit about you, maybe. They probably are. You know, <laughs> and like when I, I remember really specifically when I was in uh, Hong Kong for a few days, the oh. like the like English like expat like colonizer vibe this is what i'm talking about just like fuck off yeah fuck off why this is you're making me look so bad and i don't want to hear you that's exactly the like what you just said that was the the type of vibe i had sitting and that was like we had just been there for like a fucking hour you know what i mean i was like fuck anyway that's i don't want to get stuck up on that because that's a funny thing but we had great indian food probably the best i've ever had um well in the cuisine there i remember james kind of describing malaysian food to me um your drummer when he had first kind of told me about going to malaysian stuff he said it was like indian meets chinese and then like cantonese and indian together. food mixed yeah and it's like just like so flavorful and everything is just uh just like spiced extremely well and seasoned and they drink coffee out of a bag. They get you get hot coffee in a plastic bag with a straw in it, but they brewed it like right in front of you. You know what I mean? And, like it looks like a fucking weird like like bladder bag or the fuck, you know? But like it just like everything just um, I I had never eaten that well before in my life, and I, I, honestly, for my health as someone with like stomach issues and digestive issues, like it was a fucking godsend. And I was like, I'm living, I'm eating the wrong shit. You know what I mean? Like it's literally like chemicals in food that fuck people up you know like just eating it's like natural is like fucking crazy difference even just for two weeks you know um but yeah we were staying at some like pretty run down like hotel hostel and it wasn't a hostel it was like a motel um close to the venue it was like down the street from the venue uh when it time came time to play the show went to the place the spot i was fishnets and all Walking down the street with the box of merch on my shoulder, I remember this, and I could feel the tension in the air, and that, like on the streets, and the ten that tension follows me wherever I go, even when I'm not like dressed sexy and feel good, like even when I it's just like that constant, I always feel like I'm being watched type of feeling, and it came back and hit me there, you know, and I was getting ants for the show, and it, I it kind of like brought me back down. I was like, fuck, I gotta like. Just brought the, all that anxiety back, you know. I was like, fuck, I don't know where I am right now. I don't know what to expect. We got to the show. We set up our merch. And I went outside to have a smoke. And I thought I was going to die. This, and this is probably the scariest moment of the tour. This kid in Muslim garb walking down the street. He stopped. He's like, hey, in a perfect English. Hey, are you a jihadist? And I was like, what are you talking about? You talking to me? And he was like, yeah, you. Are you a jihadist? You playing haram, right? And I was like, calm the fuck down. 
take a step back. Who the fuck are you? I thought I was going to have to like fight this kid or kill him or whatever. He was like, are you a jihadist? I was like, no, I'm not. Where are you getting that from? He was a kid that just had like no idea about what the, and this is what I was afraid of. Like he completely misinterpreted. He was like a, a Muslim, a very, very faithful, like practicing Muslim that was also into punk music and came to the shows in Penang, you know, and I, I guess he was a local and just like was coming to the show, but had heard something about the band. And I understand that if you misinterpret what I'm saying, it could be very offensive to you as a Muslim person. And that's something I always try to clear up and try to be um, as real as I can about. So is this conversation happening in English? It's happening in, in English. Yeah. Uh, right outside the venue, right before we played. So and what's the language in Malaysia? Uh, I guess Malay. No, uh, uh, I forgot. That sounds right. No, it's not. Because <laughs> the gotta delete this part. This does this person speak Arabic or no? Mm, uh, yeah, I assume they would speak Arabic. Um, which is what your lyrics are in. Well, I'll tell you. I'll tell you one interesting thing in a second. I'm a fucking idiot. It is Malay. There's. I was thinking about something else. There's something else that they call it because I know Malay is like one of, like. The languages in Malaysia, but there's like a, maybe it was like a dialect they were saying. I don't know. I forget. Um, Malay. So there was a moment I had with that kid where I thought it was over because I was just ready for that. You know, I'm always, even in New York, I'm always ready for that situation. I try to be at least. Um, he ended up being a good buddy. Like we we, we chilled after the, the show, and he was like, "This is some this is something that happened after every single show." Um. I'd go outside, just like I told you I like to do, or I stay within wherever the crowd is. And specifically in Malaysia and in, in Indonesia, people would sit down with me, like as if I was like fucking Jesus Christ with his, his disciples. You know what I mean? And like, I felt a little odd because I was like, I don't try to present as someone that knows anything or or is like some sort of deity. You know what I mean? Like, I am just a person with a story. And I'm, my main purpose is not to talk about myself. I want to hear about what the fuck you've been through, you know? Um, or at least that, that exchange of information, you know, and I, I turned it into that. So we would sit down, we sat down in front of the, the venue in Penang. Um, they were drinking this like fucked up sh- Kratom shit that they were making in like bathtubs and shit. So everyone's like really fucked up at that show. Like all the kids were like, I felt kind of sad. Like a lot of these kids, like were kind of like in the sh- like punk that, we were talking about before, like their mentality on punk was like, get fucking slizzed at the show, you know, and like fucking be an asshole and act like a dick, you know. Um, but we t- we got to talk a lot after that show, I remember. And um, I got to ask a lot of questions. And so I, you're sitting in ch- a chair and people are sitting around you. They're sitting around food. me and I, they brought me fish and I, I multiplied <laughs> it. Uh, I'm drinking sitting- red wine. <laughs> I turned kratom into red wine into kratom <laughs> for the kids. No, I was just like sitting on the ledge and like all these kids just started sitting with me. The show that was like legit what you just said, like like kids gathered around me and like like straight up Jesus shit was Jakartan. Like that was crazy. Is that the next stop? No, we played Kuala Lumpur the next day. Um, and that was insane. That show was fucking wild. Okay, tell me that show. Um, or are we done with Penang? Penang, yeah, that's all that happened. And then, really? you, and then you flew to Indonesia. Uh, we took a bus, bus to Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia. 
uh, on Malaysia, sorry. Yeah, yeah. And from Penang to Malaysia, it was like a few hours. Uh, really nice bus ride. It's a beautiful fucking bus ride. And even the bus was fucking like fuck Greyhound. That bus was incredible. Like each fucking seat was like a couch. Um, we were traveling with this one kid. His name is Wong, who has a really sad story. Um, we're planning to do like a benefit show for him, but there's a problem in specifically Malaysia, uh, where you have these like stateless kids. So his story was like, so you're traveling with him because he was just going to the shows. Sort of he thing? was at, he met us at the show in Penang, uh, and he like quit his job and he was like, I love your fucking band. He was like obsessed with toxic state bands and like was showing me recordings on it. He's a young kid, like 19 was showing me like. Like crazy spirit ripoff, like like riffs that he wrote and shit, like on his phone. I just like I felt this like awesome energy from him. He's like young, excited kid, you know. Um, and I love meeting people that are excited about music, you know, like the, like our type of fucking music. So I was like, yeah, he was just like gonna come on the bus. He bought a ticket, like the right there, and got on the fucking bus with us. But yeah, his story is crazy. Like his parents died when he was really young before they could register him. Uh, I hope I'm getting this right. And basically, yeah, he was just like in foster care and then like was raised, was never officially registered. His dad was, I think, Indonesian. His mother was Malaysian. And they were supposed to, to register him in his birth country. And he wasn't. And now he's like stateless. Doesn't have papers. Um, and they want to deport him, but they can't. Because where, do you, where are you going to deport him from? Uh, and it's like, you know, he can't get any fucking benefits and health care and he just can't find a job. You know, it's just like a terrible fucking situation. So he's been appealing to courts, like trying to get in and we're going to try to help him out overseas, send some money or something, help him with his court fees. But that kid sat right next to me and told me that story on that whole bus ride. And I definitely teared up like a few times on that bus ride. But I will be honest, when he first sat down next to me, I was like, fuck. <laughs> Because I was really tired and this kid was really high energy and I just like wasn't ready for that. But I, it ended up being like one of the most important conversations I had on the tour because that that kid just like reminded me of myself when I was younger, just in terms of the energy, not his situation. Um, yeah. And we got to Kuala Lumpur. Don't remember what we did. Oh, we went to like this awesome restaurant. It was like an outdoor place. We had some like fish. Uh, that's how I remember this tour, by the way. It's like. What do we eat here? Oh, yeah. We play that show there. It's like first the food. Um, and then we went to the show. It was on the like the 17th floor of this giant building. Like almost like a fucking like New York City tower, like skyscraper. It was crazy. And as we're taking the elevator up, uh, Sinchan, the guy that booked the show, looks at me and he's like, you know, there's a there's a Sharia court in this building. On like the eighth floor. And I was like, what? He's like, yeah, look, like in the elevator is like a little list of each floor. It says family, Sharia family court. I was like, what happens there? He's like, well, in Malaysia, there's police and then there's Muslim police. On your state card, it you're required to to register your religion, your faith. So if you're Muslim, it'll say Muslim, Christian, whatever, respectively Buddhist, you know. Um and if, say, for example, like during Ramadan, this blew my mind. And this is something that I was looking for. This is like the, the, the questions I was looking to ask. I was curious about this type of shit. During Ramadan, if you are seen breaking fast, like say like it's like the middle of the day, you're just eating on the sidewalk. A Muslim Sharia police officer could come up to you and be like, let me see your, your card. 
If it says you're Muslim, you could get fined. You could get jailed for breaking fast because you're technically Muslim. You're registered Muslim. You have to adhere to that faith, you know, which is wild. And you'll and if you are tried, you go to this Sharia court and they will fucking you could get lashes. You could get caned. You could, you know, it's still like very, very like harsh, you know, and. I started freaking out. I was like, you're, you booked a haram show uh, like a couple of floors away from a Sharia. Co- like, what would they do to me if they found out what I was doing? And he's like, you don't want to know. And I almost shit my pants when he said that. But it gave me this like type of like evil energy. You know what I mean? Like I, I wrote off that day. And um, the show was really good. I remember it was a really cool space. Um, See, so all played that, that night. They traveled with us from uh Singapore um yeah that show was great there was like this awesome view like from the building you could just see like all Kuala Lumpur after the show we went to this like just night market they have like night markets with food and everything it was so much fun got to hang out with all those kids or great kids and that was pretty much it for Kuala Lumpur we didn't stay there too long the next day we took a train we took a train to the airport, straight to Jakarta, and Jakarta was probably my favorite show. Yeah, I think. Uh, Indonesia, I had the same feeling flying into, into into Indonesia. Like I got to Malaysia, felt like holy shit, this is new. But by by the time I, we were flying to Indonesia, I was like, ah, like maybe I I've seen what this is like now. You know, obviously there's two different countries with like way different cultures, but I was like, maybe I'm more accustomed to like traveling now. Maybe it was like whatever. Landed in Indonesia, same culture shock. I was like, where the fuck am I? This is completely different. Um, we met up with our driver. He drove us to the show. It was hot as fuck. Maybe the hottest I've ever fucking been. And not, I love, again, I love the heat, but I'm talking like, like metal that I was wearing on my body, like rusted by the end of the day. Like it was wild, bro. Like it was crazy. But, um, what number are we talking Fahrenheit? Oh, here? God. I have no idea. I mean, it must have been over. More than 100? Like, more than, yeah. Definitely. Definitely. I've never seen, like, I, I don't complain about that shit. And, like, I don't bring it up. And I don't like when people complain about the weather, period. But, like, I had, like, bootstraps on. And that shit rusted off and fell off. Like, it broke off. Like, I couldn't believe the amount of, like, oxidation that was going down. You know what I mean? I couldn't, like, understand it. Just, like, mo- it's like, like heavy moisture and humidity. You know what I mean? And it's just, like breaking people down um literally your clothes were falling off falling off of me you know and they already are but like they were like just melting um the show the fishnets disintegrated disintegrated nothing on no uh those held together somehow but where did i get i think i got new ones in japan i ended up getting new ones but um okay so one of the things i was curious about because i know that Muslim kids know some Arabic. They have to because there's no other way to recite any prayer, uh, any of the prayers in, in Islam. You have to recite them in Arabic. Something I learned that was really interesting is that a lot of these kids had to take like Sunday school or they took Arabic as a second language in school, but they didn't memor they didn't like learn the language. They would just like memorize what they had to memorize to get by the class, which reminds me of like my own like like schooling. Like I was taking like Spanish in school. Like I don't. I wasn't like really into it and like learning the language. I was just like, what do I have to do to pass this test or write this paper? You know what I mean? It was like that type of attitude. So a lot of the kids would like be talking to me and they'd be like, oh, do you know like like this prayer in Islam? Like, did you have to say this? Like we we're just like connecting, you know? And I'd be like, yeah, you know what that means or whatever? And they'd be like, 
no, what does it mean? I was like, but you recited it in perfect Arabic. Like, how do you not know? And they're like, oh, we just memorized the sounds, not the meaning, you know? So I was curious as to like, if any of these kids like knew our lyrics, you know? And like, I wonder if they knew like what I was singing about. Lo and behold, this is the first time and probably the last time this has ever happened and will ever happen. Jakarta, like the mic got taken from me many fucking times throughout the set. And there's videos online of this set um, that I watch often, honestly, just because it kind of gives me some um, hope to continue doing this. Like they took the mic and sang the songs in Arabic and my heart was just like melted. You know, I couldn't believe it. Um, there was people to the wall, like wall to wall, it was packed, it was a packed fucking show. Um, it was amazing and we i left the venue we went outside and the whole literally the whole show and then this has never happened usually it's like five or six kids that want to ask me some shit the whole show came outside and we all sat down and we all talked about what the fuck is happening in the world and that's what that's what fucking punk's about it's like go to a show sit down and talk about what's good in the world and what the fuck you need and what the fuck's going on around you yeah i learned so much that day and I fucking took everything off my body. I had earrings. I just gave them to people. I had like fucking like whatever. Like I had a belt. I took it all. You know, like I was just like trying to like. We were hot. I was hot. But I wanted people to just like remember that because it meant so much to me. And I hope it meant just as much to them. And what uh, what were they saying? What did they think about the world? Uh, they were telling me about how. They were telling me about their world, you know, like and, and like how punk. Like I asked a lot of about like how punk music is like what is it like here you know like punk bands in in malaysia and indonesia specifically are slept on there are so many fucking good bands even the bands that we like the show that we play in jakarta was like with like eight other fucking bands i watched some of them and they were so fucking good you know um the one that we played with this band hong and and uh penang fucking killer i listen to their tape all the time i can't see aquaing so much music comes out of there and i was like how does like community like how does your community interact with people around like you know normal people in your neighborhood and shit like when you're playing gigs like do they get pissed like what's the deal do cops show up and one of them told me this crazy story about like in malaysia there was like this censorship push like they wanted to try to censor all music where if you wanted to listen to a certain type of music you would have a library to pick from like it was like government selected and mandated and not mandated, but like regulated rather um, music for you to listen to. And there was a huge push on punk music. Like people just did not, they wanted punk music to be illegal. Like the, no amps, nothing, no shows, but it didn't pass and they fought against it. Like it was like a community effort and like they really went and like, and it look like this isn't just like going and you pick it in Times Square and then you, you know, it's not like, it doesn't work like that. Like, you, if you're protesting in some of these countries, like you're putting your fucking life out there. And it's like, this is a serious fucking thing. Like if you care about something, you're going to go all the way in any of these countries, you know? And that kind of 
left an impression on me to just fight for what you love and, and what you care for, you know, and what you're a part of. Um, but yeah, that show was incredible. That was an incredible show. I'll never forget that show. Uh, and then afterwards, what was the next day? And we just flew around Indonesia playing different shows. We went to Yogyakarta. Uh, pretty awesome show. I got a face tattoo um, on a whim. And my bandmates hate me forever. And I kind of hate myself forever too. Not because of the tattoo, because I got it like 30 minutes out from a flight. Uh, well, the tattoo artist told me it would take like 15 fucking minutes and he was lying. And I kind of knew he was lying, but I, I figured maybe we had time. But it was a nightmare. And we like ran to the airport to get to Bali the next day. Um, what was the tattoo of? Uh, so I wasn't going to get a face tattoo. That wasn't like my plan or anything. Um, but I was looking through the book and... We just like went to this random tattoo shop that the, the driver knew and it was like his boy or whatever. Uh, and he had this design. It was like this like like screaming tiger, you know, and I was like, what is this? Because I, I love that image. Like the blind tiger is like my shit, you know, uh, that lore is just like really resonates with me. Um, but it was, this one was like it's just a screaming tiger. And I, it's, it was like in a design I'd never seen before and a style I'd never seen. And I was like, what's what's good with this? And he's like, oh, this is like a Malaysian tiger. This is a Malay tiger and like this represents strength in our culture. And like, tell me like, just like the lore of that specific, like, like uh, animal, I guess, in their culture, you know, um, but I don't know what drove me to put it on my face. I was just like, you know what? This tour meant so much to me. This fucking leg of the tour, specifically in Indonesia means so much to me. Like. I'm going to do this. Put it on my face. Let's fucking do it. Like, I just went crazy for a second. We did it. I don't regret it. The only thing I regret was the stupid fucking, like, rush to the airport. Definitely should have given myself more time to do that. But I should have spoken more about Jakarta the next day. Before we went to Yog Jakarta. I was telling you a little bit. Before we went to Mesjid uh, al-Istiklal, the Mosque of Freedom. Um, I'd never heard about it before. It's, like, the largest mosque in the southern hemisphere. And I have this obsession with mosques because they're always they're always like so beautifully like constructed and designed and and this one particular one was huge and they wouldn't let us in at first and they were all iffy because we look like fucking weirdos and then eventually they gave us some robes and they let us in and we got to walk through and they were having this like woman's day like uh speech in the mosque and like there was like what looked like a thousand like it's just a sea of hijabs. It's like sitting, like we were on the balcony looking down. It was just like colorful hijabs. That's all I remember. And like, it was in English too. The speech was in English. And um, we sat there, we listened to a little, a little, a little bit of it and like fucking walked around. And that was like, maybe that was maybe the most meaningful point of the tour for me where, where I was like allowed to go into this like incredible mosque and play a haram show on the same day. You know what I mean? Like, that was a major, like, thing. When we went to Yogyakarta, this was also a major point. This definitely changed me as a person. We stayed in a hostel in Yogyakarta. And before the show, we get a text uh, from Sinchan, who was the organizer in Malaysia. And he's like, look, you, you have to be careful about the way you look. Like, you have to look like a tourist. Don't go in, like, the leather shorts and shit. Don't go with your swag. You have to be low profile in Indonesia and Malaysia. I was like, okay. 
So I whatever, I had some jeans, whatever. I was trying to look as touristy as possible, put sunglasses on. We got to the hostel and we were getting ready for the show around like six o'clock. And did he I'm, say why you had to do that? Attract too much attention. And if the Sharia police came up to you, you'd be in big trouble. If they yeah. found out what you were doing, and they would find out because they would like beat beat the information out of some of the kids around you. That's what he told me. I don't know. Um, so I just listened and, and kept a low profile. Um, this is something I'll never forget. 6 p.m. before the show in Yogyakarta, the second show on the Indonesian leg of the tour. Um, I'm putting on my shit. And all of a sudden, the call to prayer starts playing in the city. Allah! Right? And then you hear that and it starts layering. It starts going off all of that. It's shaking the fucking walls. And I'm putting on my fucking shit to get snuck to the show down this fucking street to play a fucking haram show in the middle of this, like, sea of screaming call to prayer. It was the most meaningful fucking thing to me. I felt like a fucking outcast and I felt like I have something to, I had something to represent. It just felt underground in that fucking minute, you know? I felt like it was fucking real. That's the realest it's ever fucking been for me, you know? Besides the interrogation way back in the day in 2016. Like this that was like the that milestone, you know? I was just like fuck, we are in a place where this is going to mean something to people, you know? And it woke me up and that show was fucking crazy too. It was a big warehouse um like art space kind of it was kind of cool um but yeah that's something i'll never that moment fuck i've written so much about that moment it's influenced me in so many great ways i was also terrified you know at the same time i was like holy shit like what does this mean you know like is this like a sign that i'm gonna be in trouble here or something you know but nothing really happened luckily um when when when's the last time that you prayed uh, I was in high school. Last time I fasted and prayed, I think, was junior year of high school. So I was like 16, 17. Um, oh, I said a little prayer in the cab after I got the face tattoo on the way to the airport because we hit traffic. I said I, there was one moment I turned to the God that I believe doesn't exist and prayed to him. I don't know. That's crazy. You know, what do they say? There, there isn't an atheist in, in the the trenches or whatever. That's how I felt. I was just like, fuck. <laughs> Do not let my band kill me for missing this flight to our next show. Yeah, that's pretty much how it was. <laughs> uh, it was, damn. Uh, no, but the, the last time I seriously prayed and practiced Islam in general was in high school around junior year. Um, did you have any, when you were hearing the call to prayer there, did you have any like, oh man, should I, I just, I need to get, should to, I just join? Should I just do it? Look, I'll tell you something like, I could go, and I haven't done this, but I could go to mosque and pray and feel good and feel like, like, like I just did yoga or something. You know what I mean? Like, it's a, that's what it means to me. It's like a comfort. Like when I was in the the Masjid Istiqlal in Jakarta, like I felt comfortable. I mean, it's just I did that shit for so long. Every fucking week, I'd go twice a week, Friday and Sunday. Friday was Friday prayers, and Sunday was Arabic school. I was like in the mosque constantly. I guess it was just like a comforting thing. It's really strange to me. I don't know. I don't understand it. Um, but I just felt like it's like this like safe spot, you know. I guess because when I was younger, I was getting bullied a lot for being like an Arab kid and Muslim and shit, you know. Maybe I just felt like that was like my safe spot, you know. 
and it's so it carries on uh you know there's been a few times where like i'll be in like cabs or whatever like muslim people and like you know we'll be just shooting the shit and i'll come out and they'll be like oh i'll come down to like the mosque in Bed-Stuy or whatever and like Park Slope we have a mosque you should come and like one day I might you know I might just do it just for ritual meditation's sake you know I think it, it does mean a lot to me in that sense you know yeah maybe I'll do that soon I don't know I could use that it kind of like realigns me in a way it's weird I don't believe anything like I'm not practicing at all and I I'm fighting in reality I'm fighting against it you know I'm fighting for the the right to practice anything in general but I'm fighting against the things that are not changing. I, I'm fighting for a progressive Islam, a, a progressive way to to be a part of this faith if you choose to be, you know. And I'm also fighting for its protection because it's it's just like a scary life to lead in today's world, you know. Um, and it's the bravery it takes for for those people. But also, you it's limiting, and it's just I don't know. It's a, it's a two pronged thing, you know. Um, but yeah, maybe maybe I will go. Maybe think about it now. Maybe. There's something about the um yeah, like you kind of mentioned. <clears throat> There's something about the ritual of any sort of like practice that you were involved in for a long time, I think that yeah, it's it's comforting, but it's also like I don't know, there's you can kind of experience it in new ways too, probably. Yeah, that's true. You know, kind I of reinvented or whatever. Make make it something new. Um, I'm sure you you know probably would never been. It's not like uh, you hear the call to prayer and you know fucking Bushwick coming from all different you know no, angles right. or whatever. It's, it's not it's like it's around me or anything you know. And there's no like I don't think I've really seen like a ornate mosque in the five boroughs. You know what I mean? Like mosques in New York are just like that room in that building you know what i mean like um but i don't know i just don't like getting preached to muslims love to do that you know i've had moments and i've shared these moments where i like be talking to a stranger and they'll find out i was ex-muslim they're muslim and be like oh you a brother you have to come back you have to become a fit you know it's like you get points for that as a muslim person like you get an extra room in your mansion in paradise you know <laughs> It actually says it in the Quran. Uh, no joke. <laughs> a room for each person? I don't know about the room, but it, you do get rewarded for, for converting people. Um, I also feel that way in churches. Like I went to a funeral recently and like I was sitting in the back pew of a church and I felt really comfortable. I also had to go to church every Friday. I used to go to church and mosque on the same fucking day. Because um, you went to church at school? At school. So it'd be like every first Friday of every month they do like a half day at catholic school and you'd like go to the parish local church down the street um but i felt that way too it's, it's like it's kind of like i feel like all these like religious establishments are built up to be like this like i don't know they just like are meant to like inspire awe when you walk in you know like a lot of churches are like that more so than mosques you know um the fucking like stained glass and like the stations of the cross and whatever you know it's like meant to give you that like holy atmosphere um so i find comfort in these places i don't know why but. it sounds to me like your your um purpose in life might be starting a you know non-denominational mosque or something <laughs> i look i might do that but it might be for my people and my, maybe my sect of islam that's something i've been shooting towards recently i feel like i feel like something i like about religion is that 
it gives you borders in a way, you know, just like any lifestyle, you know, but religion does it in a way where like you have the security of the afterlife, right? Like you're not worried about your mortality. And that's something that I lost pretty early on. You know, I was just like, you definitely nothing. No, that's not, in my opinion, like, I don't think anything happens when after you die, you know what I mean? Uh, but it sets up this like way where you could, you have some, you have the security, you know what I mean? Like you can just say, Alhamdulillah, like, oh, like, thank God, you know, like I heard people use that or Muslim people use that constantly. Alhamdulillah, Alhamdulillah, thank God, thank God. Um, you always have this thing to thank. And you always have like this thing to fall back on. You know, you have this like rigid, it's like a rigid structure because it's like defined in front of you. And I, I'm writing something now kind of like a manifesto style book um, that that uh, with the intention of having that goal uh, of of setting down like commandments sort of and through passages of just like a lifestyle and the way I live, you know, and like the way that uh, I think you could achieve happiness and success, you know. Um, and it's just my opinion. And I hope people read it and take it as they will you know whatever but what's it called uh i think i'm gonna call it fear of the unknown which is something that i think um has plagued me for my life you know just people don't know people don't know about things and then i think the the human instinct is to be afraid you know what i mean like when you don't know something i think that you want to get away from it because you don't understand it. And I think, I believe that happens in this country now, you know, with Muslim people specifically. Islam is so far away from Western culture. It's like, it's, it's so different. Like there's not, there's like, it's, you can't even fucking explain it. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, you, you could try to learn, you go to school, you take like a Islam 101, like you won't get it. Like it's, it's, it's so different in terms of just like the moral values and like the, 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 the social structures, you know? And I believe that's why we have this, like, besides, like, just inert bigotry that we have in this fucking country, you know, like, I think that there is this just inability to to see eye to eye or to, to even understand each other, you know. And I feel like in New York, for example, we're privileged to have, like, all different types of cultures where, like, even if we don't understand it, we're like, but you're that and that's okay because, like, we have a hundred different religions and identities here. And, like, if you want to be that, you could be that, you know. Other places, that's not the case. Like, there's, like, one type of person, and if there's another type of person, you get checked out. And if they don't understand you, it's fear. And what does fear lead to? Violence leads to persecution, bigotry. Um, and I feel like I've dealt with that, so I thought that would be a cool name, uh, appropriate name for a book that I would write um, about how to live, you know? I think that um, I'm still working on it, but I think it should come out, like, next year. Hopefully. Well, I look forward to reading it. Thanks. Um, so, and where are we? In the Ninja <laughs> Cape Town, huh? Talking about the tour. Shit. Uh, Do you have any more shows in Indonesia? Mm, we Bali. played Bali. Yeah, so Bali was a cool show. That's at like a resort or something? Yeah, how'd you know? Did we tell you about that? No. It was at a resort. Oh, really? <laughs> it so, it was not like a resort, but it was like... I'm just, I don't know. I think Bali, I think a resort. Right. It's, I didn't know is that like fucking touristy of a fucking place it's crazy like i i saw more like british and australian people i've never i've never seen that many people <laughs> it was crazy i was just like what the fuck um 
but it wasn't like a resort. It was like a DIY center library, a collective, um, kind of on the water. It was like at the edge, uh, of this, like just long road. I remember we just fucking drove like straight down. It's like one lane road. The very end was a spot. Um, we played outside. It was an outdoor show, which was cool. And I don't think we had really ever done that. I think we did a couple of day shows here and there. Like I think we did one in Portland and maybe California or whatever. But no, yeah, this is like a, it was a fucking crazy outdoor show. And like we, it was, was like a that fest. night. It was that night, and it was a fest. Um, it was a benefit show. Um. We had a good time. I don't. I don't really remember. I didn't really get to talk to too many people. People were fucked up at that show. People were just wasted. I. I didn't really talk to many people at that show. I was also fucking exhausted. What was uh, the benefit for? Um. Oh, I think it was just for the Despensar Collective. I think, which is just the. I think. I think specifically it was for the library that they had in that um, on the grounds. Um. I think. I think they were. They were having funding issues. And wanted to have like the benefit go towards that. Um, went to the beach the next day, which was beautiful. In Bali. In Bali, and um, we stayed at the Dispensar house um, with the punks there. Uh, that was really cool. We don't really. I don't really remember talking like much about my own politics or anything at that at this show. Um, and by this time we were fucking tired. We were, we were just tired people, but we were going to Japan. That was like the light at the end of the tunnel. Cause we knew that we were just going to fucking, that was like going through Indonesia was like five days of no rest, no stop. We knew we had a day off coming in Singapore and in Japan, we were going to have a day off the first day. So we were all looking forward to that. Um, Bali was great. Then we went over to Singapore the next day day off then we went to japan japan you know it's, it was more familiar like when you when you get to japan when i got to japan rather like i didn't feel the same culture shock even though it was you know completely different obviously um i just felt like it was more westernized if i could say um but yeah one thing i remember i like always saw like videos of japanese police like on whatever, like TV or whatever, movies. And I remember like juxtaposing like police in Jakarta with police in Japan, like mostly women in, in Jakarta, I remember. Like hijab, like very tight hijab, the fucking badge, like very neat and just like serious as fuck, you know, and they have like the 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 fucking baton and shit. Then like police in Japan are very colorful, you know, like just like kind of like, like just baggy clothes and just like funny hat. They just like look like non-threatening. You know what I mean? I was just like, whatever. Police in the Benny Hill theme song. Was <laughs> as I like walk down the road. Yeah, pretty much. But the police in Indonesia were kind of scary because they were like, there's something to me. I think maybe it's like my, my aunts, my aunties and, and my mother might've ruined this for me. But like, there's something that there's nothing scary to me than like, a serious angry hijab muslim woman like in my life <laughs> i'm just like that's who punished me when i was a kid so i was just like oh, shit. um japan was great the first show we played was in tokyo we played with forward 
skates. Amazing shawl. Do you remember the venue? Uh, it was Moonstep. Um, something I love about the Japanese punk scene is I could tell that they had no idea what the fuck was going on. I could tell that when we played, they were like, what the fuck is this? Which is like, reminded me of like the first few shows we played here. You know, people were like, who the fuck are you, number one? Number two, like, what the fuck are you talking about? What language are you, you know, like all these questions. Luckily, I had done an interview with Shogo, who set up the tour there. Um, and a lot of people had the magazines. Like, I, we, I got off stage and I, I saw people outside, like, looking, like, reading the magazine, like, looking at me and then being like, what, like, learning after the fact, like, what was going on, and then coming up to me and trying to talk to me about it, which is, like, really interesting. So, like, that's something that I love. When I can play to people that have no idea what's about to happen, that is my favorite show. It's just something about, like, that raw reaction that I could hear after the, that set, like, drives me to keep doing it, you know? It's, it's like, what do you take out of this when you first see it, not knowing anything, you know? That's why you guys played that uh, Bluegrass Festival a couple years ago. <laughs> fuck you, Reed. <laughs> uh, that, but you know what? Yeah, you know what? Fuck you, because that show was great for that reason. I, I, got, I ain't knocking it, man. Fuck I you. Play whatever that the fuck show you was want. great for that. I mean, there was children at that show. That was wild, dude. There was like literally like ten year old kids at that show, mosh, moshing. Um, <laughs> but a lot of those, yeah, a lot of those people they're like fucking like weird Portland hippies or whatever, and they're like, dude, like what the fuck was that? It was crazy, man. Like we got to talking, like whatever, like. I like to shock people. I like to challenge people. And I can't really do that in New York anymore. And that's fine. I'm bummed about it. But when I play in New York, it's a different type of vibe. You're not going to see me going crazy and like giving it all my energy. Because in New York, you know what the fuck is up. You know who I am. We're here for a fuck to, to, to represent again. You know, and that's the type of vibe I have in New York. But when we're on the road, like it's on. Like it's like I assume that you've never heard of me and that I have to give you a fucking show. You know, I have to do my best um in terms of just really expressing myself as much as i can the hardest i could go um and i did that in japan i think the most um just because it was like standstill crowds like in indonesia and malaysia like people were going nuts like people were dancing i think they were just already fucking were hyped on it you know they already knew what the fuck was going on they knew about the band already um and they felt represented by it and that was something that like just to go back that to, to that for a second, like something I failed to mention is like the biggest takeaway I took from Southeast Asia was that the beauty of me, an ex-Muslim Arab American, playing in a Muslim majority country to some practicing Muslim showgoers, punks, ex-Muslims, and other religions, and maybe no, you know whatever, nothing. Um, the beauty of all of us coming into that room and feeling solidarity with one each other and feeling good and feeling uh, represented together, like blew my mind. And I asked a lot of people like, why do you feel like I represent you? I don't know anything about the way you, you you're different, you know, like we, we come from the same root, but you are a different plant. We are a different uh, experience, you know? And what they say to me usually is, I don't care what you're talking about. Just you doing your thing, your band doing their thing on the fucking stage is enough representation for me to feel like where I came from is being spoken for, you know? So it's that, that very loose, minimal connection that makes people express themselves even just dancing, you know, or just inter interacting and reacting to the show. 
it was that little connection of just like you're not talking exactly to my experience but it's adjacent to it it's close enough to where i feel represented when you're up there and that just like oh fuck like i can't ever not do this you know what i mean like i can't have a day where like this goes to shit you know God forbid the band goes like, I I need to continue doing this. Like, it's like, I, I felt like it just like, it was like a moment of clarity for me after that, uh, after we left Southeast Asia, because I was just like, okay, I know what my purpose is. And I think I, would, I led a very destructive life in like my young adulthood, you know, like I, I didn't have purpose. And I think that's what a lot of us do in our community. We, we, we struggle to find a sense of self, like importance, you know, like you might be like, oh, I love punk. And like, this is like, my community and like whatever and that's like the broad importance to your life but like you don't have anything that you don't have a self-driven motivation towards one single thing not not a lot of people do and i, I just feel like lucky and privileged to have like um had that um realization you know it was, it was it was a crazy moment for me um but anyway that carried on into japan and japan the biggest difference was like the crowds were just like not moving at all I don't care. You can sit down at one of my shows. I will. You can look at your phone. I'm not gonna do anything about it. I don't care. Um, but a lot of people had a lot of questions, and you know, in a similar style, I, I stayed in the crowd after the shows, and we talked a lot. Um, mostly, me answering questions. Uh, in terms of like asking Japanese punks what their lives were like, uh, I learned a little bit about like certain customs in terms of like treating uh like elders with respect and stuff like that and like um there's a lot of moments where like there would be like a school bus like letting people off on a certain corner we were hanging out at and like people would tell me to go inside you know what i mean out of respect for the children stuff like that like societal things that like even the punk scene is respecting you know what i mean like they finish a cigarette they'll put it in their fucking pocket or like they'll they'll spit in the garbage you know like that's like what I like that, you know, I don't like like, again, taking away from this like old mentality that punk is just like destructive and it's supposed to be like sloppy and like fucked up, you know, like fuck that, like respect the people around you and be someone like with a fucking set of values, you know, like don't comply and don't be like fucking like don't just, you know, do whatever what everyone else is doing, like define it for yourself, but like have you know be a person you know and I, I think that's important um i saw a lot of that in japan i, I like that and then a couple tokyo shows did you leave tokyo uh we did uh we played one show in tokyo we were thinking about doing an after show but it didn't work out um and we went to where'd we go the next day uh we went to osaka yeah um and we played with Sinos is their second to last show. Which was cool. Uh, I just started to see the things that annoy me about punk again. No offense to anyone in Japan, but like just like the cool guy attitudes. Not towards me, it is like me witness like witnessing it like amongst people you know yeah just seeing some of that go down but everyone's super fucking nice um we played with ferocious x too that night we stayed with one of them we had ryota from slow motions basis of slow motions was driving us 
wonderful person showed us around um we went to june from warhead singer of warhead's house the next day in kyoto um and shogo was telling me he was like um this is like a big deal because this guy does not invite people to his house i think he, he saw us in osaka june um he's like this guy is fucking intense like ex yakuza like the like he doesn't let people in like i think he saw something in you guys and he wants to have you over for dinner like like this is a big deal and i kind of felt that like honor elder thing come back you know a little bit and start seeing like him being a little anxious about it and being like we have to be like respectful as possible it's like his family home whatever we get there skinny little dude but he has a fucking attitude like he i i love this dude like he he's like i'm like a fucking soprano you know what i mean that's what he like he reminded me of like a japanese soprano you know just like fucking like takes no shit you know i loved it and we were just talking and he was just telling me that he was just like brutally honest with me i was like uh what'd you think of the show like thank you for having us here blah blah he's like you didn't give it your all that night and i didn't i was in osaka i was tired that day and i gave it like i wasn't like you know falling apart but like i just like it was like a concrete walled room like not too big the vibes are a little off and whatever we just played you know what i mean um and he was like, you didn't give it your all because I saw footage of you playing in Tokyo, where Tokyo, we were off the wall, like Tokyo was wild. And he's like, you didn't give me your all. And I was like, give you. And he was like, you played that show for me. I asked for that show. And I was like, what are you talking about? So whatever, it got weird. And then like, we had dinner and he had like kid, little kids, like so cute. And then he started showing us pictures when Warhead came to New York for the first time. They came with, I think it was Forward or Burning Spirits or whatever. And it's like, oh, this is when, like, me and, like, Aishia were, like, at Madison Square Garden for the first time. It's, like, them, like, in the 90s. Like, <laughs> it was, like, really funny. It was, like, a really awesome, like, down-to-earth moment, like, being at that guy's house. Um, He wants to go on tour in China. He has, like, this wild idea. And he's, like, kind of a kooky guy. But he's just, like, he's, like, Warhead and Haram. Warhead wants to do a 30th anniversary tour. And he's, like, let's do it in China. And I was, like, you want, first of all, if you want to go to China... You look fucking insane. And also, you want to take me to China. We're fucked. You know what I mean? But at the same time, maybe it'd be worth it. Maybe it's a risk that would bring some shit, you know? Maybe it'd bring some news or some new experiences. So, that might happen one day. But had dinner at, at his house. It was awesome. Chopped up a few records. Took a few records. And then we played One Last Show with Milk. in Yokaichi, um, which I think it was like a, about like an hour or two, maybe a little bit longer than that north. Um, really awesome place. Forgot the name of the. There's an awesome punk store there. Um, got some like cool leather shit. Um, I got a leather shirt. I forgot it in Montreal. Sad about it. Um, but that was a great show. It was, it was the last show of the tour, and it was a great way to end it. Just good vibes all around, good people, good band, great fucking bands that night. Milk is an amazing band. Um, we got to chill with them for a little while. Oh, Vortex, that was the name. Vortex, that's the name of the venue and the store. Amazing fucking place, really cool. Um, we had dinner that night. Uh, it was like a big old family dinner, you know. 
and then we had a day off and or i think it was a day or two off in tokyo to finish it off and we just went shopping and like said our goodbyes and then took the long ass flight back home um on the flight back home i was just i was just my pen writing hand was just going i was just writing as much as i fucking can because i was so afraid of forgetting all this shit and halfway through writing i was like i'm not gonna forget any of this like this meant this meant way too much to me for me to ever forget um some of these moments you know some of the other moments i was glad i wrote down because they're like small minor things but um all in all one of the most meaningful experiences in my life like fuck music like i'm just talking like traveling to these places as a human being they changed me and always be a part of me and i can't wait to go back one day it's it's my goal too really our music i think means um something a lot more to some of these kids in southeast asia specifically it just hits a different place in their heart you know it means something to them that i don't even understand and i think it's my responsibility to continue doing this as long as i can for people like that you know it's gone past, like it started off for me like for me you know i was so selfish about it i didn't care what, I, what people thought i didn't care if you were in or out you know i did it so i could function i did it so i could let go of this like really ang huge anger in my heart that like would have driven me to do something really bad i i really believe that like 17 18 years old like i could have easily been a jihadist easily not a jihadist maybe but like i could have killed someone like i had enough like bullying going on i had enough anger i had no outlet for any of that um and when i found punk music as a way of expression of uh, as a way of just talking about any of these things it really just like it, it gave me a place to place that anger you know and i don't know where the fuck i'd be i dead or in jail probably um and that's not accredited to punk it's accredited to like the people that were around me that gave me that platform you know and shout out to like the new york punk scene for that um and yeah i just hope to continue fighting i'm just working on staying alive staying healthy and writing more we have a new track coming out soon so it's a single for adult swim again thanks for having me on thanks for for doing all this i think this is really important for me you know even like I, i'm really excited to listen to what i had to say before and listen to what i have to say now i think that'll just kind of open my eyes to being more prepared for touring, you know, like letting go of some anxiety and just kind of going with the flow. Um, because it was really, it was killing me. Like on the on the plane ride there, I was losing it for a little bit. I thought this was like gonna be the last time I saw anyone I cared for back home. Like I was freaking out, you know what I mean? I just like didn't know. Um, and I have no one to talk to about that type of shit. You know what I mean? Like who do I say like, hey, like ex-Muslim, like Arab kid, like what do you think of it? You know what I mean? Like I don't have too many of those people around me. Um, but yeah, I don't regret anything I've ever done, period, but also definitely not that tour. It was amazing. It was awesome. And I can't wait to go back. And there you have it, folks. Another episode of Protest and Survive in the books. This time we interviewed Nader Haram, New York City punk band Haram. Thanks so much to Nader for taking the time to do two interviews with us. One of them was really long and, you know, being open and sharing your story and letting us know what it's like to play in this band. 
This episode's original score was provided by Jesse Crawford. Please do not forget to rate, review, and subscribe to Protest and Survive wherever you listen to podcasts. More information at anchor.fm slash protest dash and dash survive. You can listen to Haram's music and find out more about what they're doing at haramharam.bandcamp.com. If you want to watch the video that I made about Haram back in 2017 that I referenced at the beginning of this episode, you can do that at reeddunley.com. And normally at some point in this podcast, I ask people to donate to this podcast so we can keep on putting it out. Don't donate to us right now. Find an organization in your community or a community that you care about that's doing necessary work on the ground surrounding COVID-19. If you're in New York, I like Make the Road New York's COVID-19 response fund um, to help out low-income immigrant members of Make the Road New York. And I hope everybody's staying safe and positive out there. We'll catch you next time on Protest and Survive. Thank you.